Okay, thank you, Brother Dale. It's good to uh, be here tonight. Sammy and I missed you on Sunday, but we did enjoy being with grandchildren. We don't get to see very much, and we enjoyed being able to be in Taylor's church and minister with him. Don't get that opportunity very often, but uh, thank you for praying for us and understand things went well here, here, and so we're grateful for that. Uh, let's see, about 55 years ago, let's see uh, how I'm doing in my brain power. I had a friend, his name was Danny Davis, and um, he was quite the comedian, you know, on things. We were in third grade, my dad was in Vietnam, it was 1968, and uh, the two of us cut up all the time in uh, Miss Roberts' third grade class. And uh, we got in trouble a few times, and uh, he uh, grew up to be a fantastic musician. His sisters had a show in Branson, and uh, then he also was in some uh, very big churches in the South and um, lost contact with him over time. But I still remember this and still remember what he said. It was this stupid, silly little thing. It said, uh, and it doesn't make any sense, so don't try to figure it out. And you may know a version of this. There's a lot of them around. It said, one bright day in the middle of the night, two dead boys got up to fight. Back to back, they faced each other drew their swords and shot each other. A deaf policeman heard the noise. He came and shot the two dead boys. If you don't believe this lie is true, ask the blind man. He saw it too. Now, you ought to see my grandchildren, the older ones, when I do that, and they don't get it at all. They don't see any humor in it. They don't get anything at all. It just, you know, you get this frown and and, uh, you know, Big G, what does that mean? Why did you say that? And, and that kind of stuff. But we thought it was funny. And, uh, and it was funny because it didn't make any sense. And it was funny because it was an impossible thing. You know what I've learned over the years? That's the way a lot of people approach the Word of God. It's a bunch of gibberish. It contradicts itself. It doesn't really make any sense. It doesn't really do anything for you. It's dry, dusty, old, and it's boring. has absolutely no relevance for today. But those of us who know the Lord and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we know that's not true. We know the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. We know that uh, it never returns void. Uh, God has promised that. It will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. And our problem is, a lot of times in the Scripture, we dive into it and we say, Oh Lord, speak to me. Oh Lord, give me a word. Oh Lord, give me something. And so we take a verse that has nothing to do with us or our situation, and we try to claim something that really doesn't belong to us. Some promises in the Bible are not made for you. And I know there are people who go, what, what do you mean? How in the world can that be? Well, God's promise that the wicked are going to go to hell. Are you going to claim that promise? Well, obviously, that's not for us. No, it's for the wicked. And likewise, there were other promises in there that if you'll read them carefully, you will find out that they were given at a certain time to a certain people or a certain person or a certain race of people. And uh, to try to claim those promises as ours... Well, it just doesn't work because we don't really understand it. And so we've got to go to the Word of God and we've got to realize God has a purpose in writing it and sometimes He is writing to very ancient people in a very ancient time, in a very dangerous time, in the kind of time that we can't even relate to 
and he gives us a promise. Does that mean it has nothing to do with it? No, we can learn about the character and the nature of God. And we can learn from what ancient people did as they stood for God, as they lived for God, as they faced their battles. And we can gain strength and inspiration from all of that because Paul did say all of the things in the Old Testament were written for our admonition to warn us so that we don't make the same mistake that other people have made. And uh, I've told you before, I had a friend who said that we're all going to make mistakes, so let's make new ones. And that's really what we need to do, not make the same old mistakes in the same old way that uh, we were warned about and warned not to do. Now, David is in trouble in this psalm. David's in trouble. He's running for his life. He literally has someone that is after his head. And the someone is not a traditional enemy. It's not like an Amorite or a Perizzite or a Philistine or something like that. It's his own son, his own flesh and blood. And when we find Absalom, he is so angry at David. He hates David. He wants to kill David. And David has to flee. David has to run for his life. Some king, some uh, great man of God having to run. And uh, we've looked at the different verses and the different aspects of all of that. But uh, David had prayed, and we looked at this uh, last week in uh, Psalm 4, verse, I think it's 6. And David had prayed, Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. Okay, now, people come to the Bible and they read a verse like that and they go, okay, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to you? And boy, sometimes in your home Bible study groups and Sunday school classes, you get some really, really weird and strange answers on all of that. Now, if I were to take that verse, Lord, let the light of your countenance shine upon us, what does that mean to me? It would mean that uh, all of your problems are over, the war is over, the battle is over, the threat is over, everything returns to normal. But that's not really what it means. David is praying that prayer in the midst of the battle, in the midst of the trial. And if you uh, read the story of David and Absalom, it ain't over yet. There's still some things that have to happen. And the story is going to end very grimly. Absalom is going to be uh, taking some bad advice. And uh, that is, you know, something he was supposed to do. David sent spies up to the palace in Jerusalem to give him bad advice. And so uh, instead of attacking David right then and there, uh, he waits and he amasses a bigger army and that type of thing. And all he did was give David, that master tactician and uh, master warrior, a chance to move from the place that he is and in Ephraim woods to be able to attack Absalom's army and win. Now, you remember the story, Absalom, he was a really, really good-looking kid, and uh, he stole the hearts of the tribes of Israel. David had very few with him, and even at that, we saw last week they were questioning, you know, what good is it going to do to follow David? Kind of like when you ask, what good does it do to stand for God? What good does it do to obey God? Seems like it complicates life. Well, that's kind of what was happening in uh, their lives. What, what good is this doing? And are we doing the right thing? Well as the battle goes on. Absalom this guy had very long hair. This is a, a 
good reason probably to you know keep your hair buzzed but he's going along and his hair is flowing he's riding fast the horse or the mule I think it is goes under a tree and he gets his hair tangled up in the tree and uh, he's hanging there by his hair ouch and even though David had said spare my son Joab the commander of David's army is so angry at Absalom that he kills him in spite of what his king has said. And you remember it throws David into a fit of grief and a fit of mourning. David won the battle. David is now the king. The Lord has uh, indeed smiled upon David. We would all agree with that. The prayer is answered. David's safe. But this wasn't what he expected. This isn't what he was wanting. His heart is hurting. His heart is about to break. He didn't want this to happen to Absalom. And uh, David has been touched by death. Remember the child that was conceived when uh, he had his affair with Bathsheba? What happened to that child? The child died. You know that hurt David. You remember reading the story that he was fasting and praying and he wouldn't wash, he wouldn't do any of those things that kings normally do. And uh, the servants are afraid to tell him that the child has died. And then they finally get up the courage, the guts to do it. And when they do that, he gets up, cleans up, and then eats. And they go, why did you uh, act so terrible before the child died? And now uh, we don't understand. And David said, well, while the child was still living, there was hope. And I was praying and fasting that perhaps God might have mercy on me. Now the child is dead. There's nothing else I can do. And he can't come to me, but I shall go to him. What a wonderful promise that is. Well, then you remember after Amnon raped Tamar, uh, Absalom kills Amnon. Okay? So there's another child of David's that is dead. And not to mention what happened to Tamar. That must have been a very dark period. Now, after the rebellion, David has lost another son. Good night. Who's left? Well, Solomon is. And David doesn't realize what a great blessing Solomon is going to be. And, of course, he's the one that takes over the throne. But uh, the sword, Nathan said, will not depart from your house. Boy, David has suffered, and he has suffered a lot. And uh, it's kind of a Job-like story, I think. And now he's running for his life. And when he writes these verses, uh, nothing has changed. Absalom is not being killed yet. The battle is not over yet. He's still, David is still hiding and running for his life and wondering how everything is going to come out. But he takes a dramatic turn. Now, all my life I've heard the saying, prayer changes things and sometimes um, I think under the influence of some faith healers and people like that we kind of get the idea that if we can do it right we will change God's mind this person is dying but we can uh, bug God enough and hound him enough that he'll finally go well okay if you insist I'll do it and then they get up from their uh, sick bed now I do believe in a God of miracles and I do believe that God works miracles and we probably could testify tonight of some miracles that God has worked I just don't have much confidence in faith healers and some of these miracle workers a lot of them we found out are immoral they're very materialistic they twist scripture and on and on we could go 
And uh, we kind of have the idea that our prayer changes the mind, the plan, and the heart of God. Now, I, I don't believe that. I believe that what happens when we pray is God, through His Spirit and His Word, He lines our heart up with His to accept His will, to live in His will, to go through the trial that we are going through. And uh, I read a long time ago where somebody says, prayer changes nothing but me. And uh, that is so incredibly true. If I can go through a trial and maybe I don't have enough faith to move a mountain and make it all go away, but I can persevere and I can learn what God is teaching me and I can come out of it intact with my faith intact, with my love for the Lord intact and learning the lessons so that I actually have a very important commodity. God is giving you wisdom. He wants you to be wise. And we don't always learn wisdom when everything's going our way. In fact, we take God for granted. In Psalm 30, David said, When my you know, mountain stood strong, I said, I will never be moved. And then you hid your face and I was dismayed. Don't we all kind of do that? When there's <coughs> money in the bank, when we're feeling good, when our kids are doing well, when our marriage is doing well, when our job and career is going well when we have status in the community and status in the church, that type of thing. You know, God has really smiled on me, we say. Well, it doesn't take much to change that. And we kind of turn into um, Job's wife. You know, she came to him and said, curse God and die. And he said, you speak like a foolish woman. Men, uh, next time your wife says something out of line, I want you to quote Job and uh, just look her in the eyes and say, you speak like a foolish woman. And I want to see what happens to you. And uh, I'm not sure Mrs. Job was thrilled with all of that. The Bible doesn't say anything, but don't get the idea that she didn't react or that didn't cause some real problems in their relationship. Uh, later on, he talks about, my wife says that my breath is offensive. You know, and so, uh, you know, tells you things probably weren't just extremely great in that situation. But um, in all of this, the Bible says over and over about Job, he did not sin. And uh, I wish God could say that about me. I wish God could say that about us. I don't like trials. I don't like attacks. I don't like battles. I don't like it when things don't go my way. I like things to go my way. I think we're all kind of like that. And uh, I don't like to have hurt or pain or betrayal. I don't like rejection. I don't like any of those things. And yet God has ordained for me to walk that path at various times in my life. And the same thing is true for you. And there's always a lesson to learn, even in grief and even in pain and even in sorrow and loss. And David is learning all of this. And uh, David's going to be a better man for all of this. But it is going to hurt, and it's going to hurt like you cannot believe. Think about where he is and what he is going through and what awaits him. And so uh, when we get to the very last part of this beautiful psalm and this psalm that is just so packed with so much, he says in verse 7, You, meaning God, have put gladness in my heart. Now David didn't do it. Sometimes you may hear a song that sounds like we can just Get rid of our sorrow and we can just pick up gladness. I wish we could. I wish we could. There was a song 
probably 20 years ago, I'm trading my sorrow for joy. I wish you could do that, but I haven't figured that out. That's hard to do. Sometimes sorrow is real, it's deep, it's hurtful, and it's long-lasting. You may be going through a trial of chemotherapy and you say, I'm just going to trade this for health. I wish you could do that, but the truth of it is you've got to go through some things. I wish with our children we could just quote a Bible verse and say a prayer and then they would quit their rebellion, come home, and everything would be great. I wish we could do that, but it's not quite that easy. And so uh, David uh, talks about this and he says, You have put gladness in my heart. When God does it, that's a different matter. And he says, More than in the season that their grain and wine increased. Verse 8. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now, uh, just making some observations, just kind of looking through that. Go back to verse 7. Where did David get gladness? God put it in his heart. David seems to be relatively passive in this. And it seems like it's the Lord who is active. So what do I have to do to get gladness in my heart? Well, you, you really won't find anything from here. I guess you could look at the previous verses and say pray and trust God and take the right kind of stand. And that's always the right thing to do. But when it all comes down to it, you have put gladness. And where is it? In your heart. Not in your circumstances. David's circumstances haven't changed. They're still rotten. They still stink. And Absalom is still a, a rebel. And there's still a lot of heartache waiting for David, but he's got something in his heart that, uh, to uh, quote the old song, the world didn't give it to me, and the world can't take it away. Remember that? And that is so incredibly true. Now, how intense is the joy? And the next word I like because it says more. It's, it's not the kind of joy that you just look at and go, well, you know, it, it, it's there, it's about what everybody has. No, it's actually more. And then he gives a, uh, an example here. More than the season that their grain and wine increased. What season would that be? He's saying there, I have more joy in my heart right now than I do at the time of harvest. Harvest was a festival in an agrarian economy like they lived in. And when it was a good harvest, it was a big festival, a long-lasting festival. It was a celebration. A good harvest meant they were going to have food, they were going to have money, they would have commodities to trade with other nations. It was just a really good time, and so they would celebrate the harvest. Now, when you're celebrating the harvest, I mean, all your grapes have come in, there's going to be plenty of wine. All your grain has come in, there's going to be plenty of, of bread and all of that. The cattle, I mean, on your flocks, they've all uh, had babies and done well and the wolves haven't gotten them. Boy, this is just great. Why can't we do this every year? Well, it doesn't always happen like that, does it? But during that time, everybody is singing and dancing in the streets and they are just celebrating it is a real party and of course it is that's that's what you do when you went when you get a windfall that's what you do when things go your way you celebrate those things but David uses that word more well David what do you have to be happy about humanly zilch nada nothing but God has done something in his heart I want to ask you a question when is the last time that everything around you seemed rotten, 
But God put something in your heart that made you have joy and made you have gladness, not just circumstantial gladness like at the harvest, but that kind of gladness that goes beyond human understanding. That kind of gladness that just doesn't make sense. I ought to be depressed. I ought to be thinking suicidal thoughts. And yet I can't because God has done something in my heart where it counts and he has put joy in there. Uh, maybe tonight when we close, one of your prayers might be, Oh Lord, put gladness in my heart once again. More than just the gladness when things go my way or I have lots of stuff or worldly security. The kind of gladness only you can give. That's something that is really, really great. And so uh, look at verse 8. Now, here he is. He's running for his life. They're at a military camp. They've got guards posted. They are watching for anything, any sign of the enemy. They're ready for a sneak attack. And a lot of people going without sleep. And David has the audacity to say, I will both lie down in peace. Not in anxiety, not in fear, not questioning everything, not angry, not pouting, not crying out in a, a, a way that is not honorable to God. He lies down in peace. The Hebrew word for peace, shalom. David lies down in the shalom of God. It's as if God has spoken over him and said to him, Don't worry about it, David. Shalom. Lie down in peace. And then he goes even further and he says, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. You know, this is a time when David ought to have a lot of insomnia. He ought to be sleeping with one eye open, right? He ought to be listening for every little broken twig, every little sound, anything that comes up and just waking him up. And yet he's going to both lie down in peace, unafraid, and he's going to sleep in peace. And uh, he's going to actually rest for a while. I got a feeling he needs it. I got a feeling he needs rest mentally. I got a feeling he needs rest in his soul and his heart. And that peace that passes understanding to guard him. Uh, you know, his sentries are one thing. But he's got the peace of God guarding him. And he says, I think I'll just lay down and let my body rejuvenate itself, let my mind rest, and let my courage and strength be renewed. You know, when we are frightened, and when we are hurting, and when life isn't going our way, we tend to lose our boldness. We tend to lose our courage. And we need a good dose of all of that. And sometimes that comes through the rest of the Lord. David's going to rest in the Lord in this situation. May not make sense to his advisors, may not make sense to his guards, but it makes sense to David. He's a man after God's own heart and he needs what only God can give him. And so he lays down and he goes to sleep. And don't you know there were some people looking and saying, how can he do that? How can you sleep at a time like this? Uh, I, I certainly couldn't. Well, David could because it's something that God had given him. And then he says... For you alone, this is the reason why he could do it. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Well, see, if I were looking at that, I would be tempted to say, if Absalom's rebellion is crushed, then you lay in safety. If all of those people who uh, 
deserted you and followed the rebel, if they would come back and swear allegiance to the king, uh, then maybe uh, you could have uh, safety and dwell in safety. Go back to your palace. Go back to the way things were before. But then again, maybe not. Because if everything's left just on a human level, even if David wins the war, how does he know who to trust? How does he know who's for him or who's against him? How, how, how does he know that this isn't going to happen again? Uh, maybe it's not one of his kids next time, but maybe it's somebody who was watching in the kingdom who hates David. And maybe it's one of Uriah the Hittite's nephews. And they said, you know, after what he did to my uncle, he doesn't deserve to sit on the throne. Well, that's a true statement. He didn't. He's only there by the grace of God. Can you imagine? Maybe Absalom has given another rebel courage and uh, the opportunity to step up and try it again. This time we'll get him. I've always uh, wondered, why do people in America want to be communist? Why do they want to be socialist? All you have to do is look at the Soviet Union. All you have to do is look at the way China has been through most of its history. All you have to do is look at North Korea. All you have to do is look at East Germany and Eastern Europe after World War II. All you have to do is just look around. Those countries have not done well. They can't even feed themselves most of the time. There are a few exceptions to that rule for brief periods of time. They're under government control. They have a totalitarian you ever wondered what that means the word total is in it it means they have total control over your total life what your religion is whether you go to church or not what you do with your money what you do with your time what your education is and uh, you know some of you may be saying well we're not far from that we're, we're probably closer than we would like to think but why do people here we've had it so good for so long and been so prosperous here I heard somebody say one time on the radio that what modern-day leftists are thinking is that uh, it didn't work in Russia because Russia was so poor. In fact, I read that Karl Marx was very disappointed that the Bolsheviks in Russia were the first to try out his uh, theory of communism because they were so backward and so uh, poor and he wanted it to be tried in a rich nation. Ah, who's the richest nation on the face of the earth? And the idea for a lot of these people is it just hasn't been tried at the right time, in the right place, by the right people. Oh, how arrogant you are to think that you can make a broken, flawed system work if only you were in charge of it. But that's what they think. They think that they are so good that if we get the chance to try it in the right place at the right time, we could make it worse. It's never made sense to me. Never made sense. But don't you know there were people in Israel thinking the same way? Well, how do we overthrow David? And somebody might say, well, you can't. He's the anointed of God. But there was probably somebody who said, I could. I could. Absalom couldn't, but I could. It just hasn't been done in the right time, the right place, in the right way with the right leaders. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And at the root of all of this kind of stuff is humanism. We can do it. We can make this happen. We can make it work even though it's guaranteed not to work. You don't want to touch David. 
David is the one that Samuel, when he was a little boy watching the sheep, he's the one that came to the house and all of the other brothers are rejected. Samuel says, do you not have any more kids? And uh, Jesse goes, well, we have one, but, you know, he watches sheep. And, uh, you know, that's not a romantic thing like we think of. Oh, the good shepherd David. Sheep is where you put the dumb ones. Okay? And the ones that couldn't do anything else. The ones you didn't have much faith in. You put them with the sheep. Can't do anything else. Put him with the sheep. And uh, that's the one that God had chosen, anointed. He's the one that when he was in about junior high age, he took sandwiches to his brothers who were at a war against the Philistines. There's a giant there that has the whole army of Israel terrified to come out and fight him. And the way they would fight, Goliath said, you send your best man out, I'll take him on, and whoever wins, wins the war. You know, well, you know, that's worse than two armies fighting, especially against that big lug. And what happens? David, the junior high kid, comes out and his older brother says, Who do you think you are anyway? Eliab said that to him. And uh, doesn't deter David. You come against me, he says to Goliath, with a spear and a sword. I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. David had the idea that the power of God trumped anything that a giant could do. And guess what? It did. And then uh, when he's part of Saul's cabinet and Saul's son-in-law as a reward for killing Goliath, he goes to battle. This shepherd goes to battle. This young man goes to battle. And for some reason, he is so skilled in his tactics and his use of the weapons that when he comes back, they're singing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Saul gets mad at David and tries to kill him and goes after him. And David, living out in the wilderness in caves, survives. And they never get him, they never find him, they never trap him, they never do anything like that. He survives for a decade on the lamb out there with all of Saul's resources coming after him. I think things like that put it in the minds of some people. You better not mess with God's anointed. God has anointed him king and you can't change that. You can't do anything about that. But there's always somebody who goes... I can. Just give me a crack at him. Give me a chance to do that. And uh, I don't honor God and I don't respect God. I don't respect his word and I don't respect his promises. And there are a lot of people that live like that today. They defy God. They shake their fist, uh, probably with a rainbow tattoo on it, in the face of God and say, we dare you to do anything about this. And there are people who live immoral lives, ungodly lives, and they say, we dare God to do anything about it. We're going to do what we want to do. And they think that somehow they're special and they're smarter and they can get away with it. And so uh, that's kind of the setting here. David doesn't really know what he's going back to if he goes back to the palace or if he survives all of this. Other than he knows that his God is faithful to his word. And God made promises, covenants with David. And um, so here David is. And uh, he has had a complete change of heart. And nothing, nothing has changed in his circumstances. Wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't you like it if you had that kind of faith and that kind of joy? Wouldn't you like it that you're going through a trial, a gut-wrenching trial. And God gives you something. 
And uh, nothing changes but you. Prayer changes me. Prayer changes me. I have God's perspective on things and God's work in my life. Prayer changes me. And so sometimes when we get into problems and relationships, we pray and we beg God, do something with them. We always want other people <coughs> to change. Because we have the arrogant idea that if other people would change, then I would be happy. My life would be easier. It's them. It's them. It's them. Well, the old spiritual said, it's not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And we think that if we could get our society to be changed, and we forget God did not send His Son to die to change society. He sent Him to die to redeem souls of men, women, boys, and girls like us. And we forget why we're here. We forget what we're supposed to do. And we want the Lord to change all of those heathen, all of those pagans, all of those perverts out there. That's the problem, and that's why I'm not happy. Well, the problem is that could all change tomorrow and you would still be miserable. You'd find something. You'd find something because you need the joy of the Lord to be your strength and that has to be the work of God. So with that said, think about this. Number one, the joy that matters is a gift. It's not something you earn. It's not something you achieve. It's something that God gives you. You have put gladness in my heart. I would ask you to pray that. Lord, put your gladness in my heart. What reason do I have to be down? What reason do I have to be glum? Think about all that you've been blessed with materially. Think about all the conveniences that are in your life. Think about the people that love you, the people that care for you, the people that are loyal to you. But if you're not careful, you'll point out the ones who are not instead of and overlook the ones who are. And you'll look at the things you don't have, like Eve did in, the, in Genesis 3, instead of being thankful for what you do have. You have put gladness in my heart. And your circumstances may not change. I can't guarantee that. But you can. And your whole outlook can change. That's number one. Number two. The joy that God gives goes beyond the norm. What do I mean by that? Well, when the harvest is good and the money's rolling in and everything's great and you've got everything you want, everything you could ever ask for, well, of course you're going to be happy. And the world looks and uh, we tell them, man, you need to serve our God. It's so great. Well, if he'll do all of that for me, if he'll make me well, give me millions of dollars and make everything go my way and change all of my enemies into friends and defeat all of them and give me revenge against them if I need it, well, I would serve him too. But this is not a normal joy. This is a kind of joy that David has and his gladness. It's more than what would normally happen in like harvest or anything like that. This is something that is supernatural. Circumstantial joy, we know, is always temporary. The new wears off of the stuff that we get and everything, well, we get a new normal, we say. Well, when you get to that new normal, you're not as excited about it anymore. Boy, you were thrilled about it uh, a month ago, but now it's kind of settled in and this is just the way it is. And you uh, think that this is the way it's always going to be. And uh, that's just not always the case. And so uh, this is something that's, 
not expected. This is something that doesn't make any sense. Why are you so happy as you go through this? Why is it that you have joy while you're going through this painful, painful trial? Uh, you want to talk about opportunities to witness? You want to talk about opportunities to answer questions? What if we really did have the joy, 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 joy down in my heart? And other people, lost people, were going, where? Remember how we used to sing that song? Well, lost people ought to be noticing our joy. Where do you have it? Where do you get it? Where does it come from? This isn't natural. You're a freak, and you are. That's why God said you were a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a what kind of people? Peculiar. You're a freak. You're his own special people. You don't fit in down here. And we don't operate by the rules of the world. And they should be going, what is this? What's happening with you? And that's not something you can work up. That's something that only God can give. Okay? Thirdly, notice the fruit of the Spirit has practical aspects. Notice this. He said, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. Well, that's what he needed. That's what he couldn't get before, and that's what sin never provided for him. Okay? Alcohol didn't provide it. Drugs didn't provide it. Sex didn't provide it. Rebellion against God didn't provide it. In fact, those things all stole his sleep. And David probably had times when he would lay there thinking, where did I go wrong? Where did I mess up? When did this start happening? Why didn't I see this before? And uh, it, it just insomnia and uh, dread and fear but after God gives him joy I will both lie down in peace and sleep I think about Jesus sleeping in the boat now the professional fishermen are panicked Lord wake up do you not care for us and uh, to have professionals be that freaked out is it must have been a bad storm but Jesus isn't worried you know what Jesus had said Go ahead and go to the other side. And he lays down in the boat. And it doesn't matter what his circumstances are. He's at peace because he knows the will of God is for them to go to the other side regardless of the storms. And so that's the way we're supposed to be. Not panicked by the storm, but resting in the promise and the plan of Almighty God. We're going to get to the other side. And then uh, you, you think about... Paul and Silas, boy, their rights are violated, they're illegally arrested, they're illegally beaten, beaten severely, and they're put in the prison, and they're, they're chained in the middle of the prison in the most uncomfortable position you can imagine. And yet, what do they do at midnight? They start singing. And the prisoners are listening to them. Then the earthquake, then things change, but notice how they started singing first. And those hymns, great hymns of faith about the promises of God and about the faithfulness of God, all of that. Everybody hears all those things. I told you that when I first went to India by myself and I got into that cab that I shouldn't have got into and then they took me out toward the red light district and in a dark, dark area, I didn't know where I was. And then they, you know, extorted money from me. And... Uh, then after I gave them the money, it took a while. I tried to negotiate and that type of thing. And uh, they wouldn't have anything to do with it. And uh, I, I remember this verse came to my mind. Isaiah 26, 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. 
So if I don't have peace, it's because my mind is not stayed on the Lord. And that's an indication that I really don't trust Him. No matter what I say, no matter what I preach, no matter what I sing, there's a practical aspect to all of this. And so David is experiencing now, remember the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace is that third thing. And David has peace. Nothing's changed. People that hate him still hate him. People that love him still love him. The ground's still uncomfortable. They're still on the run. They're still keeping guard. But David has something now that God has given him gladness and he's given him peace. And I wonder if the Lord said, David, do you remember my covenant toward you? Yes, Lord, I do. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Do you remember my promises? Yes, Lord, I do. Nothing's changed. Do you remember what you said in Psalm 23? He makes me lie down in green pastures. Yes, Lord, I do. Well, this is as good as any. Lay down and sleep, my child. And when we see that, we see that the fruit of the Spirit working in our lives gives us peace and gives us trust. And so if, if you're not experiencing all of that, Isaiah 26, 3, put your mind on Him and trust in Him and keep your mind there because we do it and then we wander away. I love Ephesians 5, uh, beginning at verse 17. It says, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine or dependent upon wine. Some people can't sleep unless they're half drunk. Some people can't do anything unless they're blitzed out of their mind. There's a better way, folks. You don't have to go that way. And that is to be filled with the Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled or under the control of the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's a lot better than lashing out in anger toward them, isn't it? And uh, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. That does something to us and it changes us and we don't have to operate on the same system that the world operates on I'm telling you God has so much more for us than we've ever claimed or ever expected or ever asked for and he's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think so ask away and ask for the big things the hard things the challenging things and let God glorify himself through that and then number four notice that the ultimate source what would it take to make you happy a pool, a Mercedes, a big vacation, a, a, a house that's three times as big as the one you have now. What, what, what will it take? And you say, boy, I'd really be happy with that. But the truth of the matter is nothing's changed since you were a little kid at Christmas. After a while, that new Batman action figure is just another thing that's in the bottom of the drawer. And uh, that new bicycle is left outside to rust. It doesn't make you all that happy anymore, the new wears off, even off of expensive automobiles, doesn't it? And clothes and all of those kind of things. David says here, a reminder, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So I conclude by reading what Stephen Lawson wrote. No believer is immune from the trials and afflictions of life. In difficult times, it is critical that we call upon God. How's your prayer life? Only He can deliver us out of our troubles. 
But too many Christians, maybe I'm speaking to you, too many Christians internalize their anxiety rather than rely upon God for relief and rescue. When deeply distressed, believers should pray to God who is a very present help in time of trouble. Psalm 46, 1 and 2. When Christians call upon God from a pure heart, they may have confidence that He hears them and will answer them according to His perfect will and plan. Is that an amen? Does that give you peace? Does that help you with things? I mean, I can't, I wish I could abracadabra alakazam and all of a sudden your children love you and they're not on drugs or alcohol anymore and they're right with God, but I can't. But I do know the one who can change that and in the meantime, more importantly, he can change you. Change you. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And we're talking here in Psalm 4 about a man who is going through one of the gut-wrenching times and trials of life. And yet he's able to lay down and he's able to sleep in peace and safety. Why is he doing that? Because of faith. He just simply trusts and believes God. How are you doing? How does that apply to your life, your situation, your problems, your trials, the things you can't figure out, the things you don't understand? How does that figure out in your relationships? And how is that with your walk with God? And so uh, I want to ask you to pray and ask God to put His gladness in your heart. David in Psalm 51, he said, Make me hear joy and gladness. Don't let it be just circumstantial or accidental. Make me. Make me. We need that, and we need it so incredibly bad. Will you bow your heads? Will you close your eyes? And if there's any sin that comes into your mind out of this, confess that to the Lord. And then as you confess that sin, say, Oh, Lord, put your gladness in my heart. I want to have the gladness, the joy of the Lord. I want you to be able to go to bed and sleep tonight because your brain rests and you can sleep in peace and safety, not anxiety and all of that stuff that goes on. I don't want you to have to be dependent upon things in a bottle that are going to try to put you to sleep artificially. Oh, wouldn't it be great if you just had the peace of God? Will you ask Him for it? You have not because you ask not, so ask. He's more than willing to give His children the things that He has promised. Just ask Him. Just ask Him. And ask Him to forgive and cleanse you of your sin. Cast your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. And let that sink in. Father, I want to join with the church tonight to pray for in my own life and in the lives of people I love. Give us your joy, your gladness. Put it in our hearts. Not in things, not in stuff, not in substances, not in any of the things that the world can provide. Just from you, the joy giver. And let the fruit of the Spirit be present in our lives in a practical way. Let us lay down in peace and safety and to sleep. And let us have something 
that is inexplicable to the world so that they may ask us, where does this come from? How do you do this? And we can tell them about you, for you alone give joy. And we thank you, Lord, for this encouraging word tonight from David so long ago. And thank you that we're not in his situation. But I also thank you, too, that you understand our situation because you understand us because you live in us. So, Father, we come to you and ask you, heal us, help us, as a church and as individuals, as families and as individuals, to be like David and to put our trust in you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray and claim this. Amen. And amen. Uh, if you'll take your news.